0: So the goodness of God, I began to think about some things in the Old Testament, um, about some events, and about the goodness of God. We know that the scriptures affirm that God is morally perfect. We know that. He's holy. You have the scriptures in it. If any of you want the PowerPoint, I'd be happy to send it to you. He is holy, just, righteous, good, All of these things. So being a morally perfect entity and all that God does, all that he commands, all that he approves, must of necessity be good. That's what the scriptures tell us. And these are the passages related to that. In Psalms 119, uh, 39 and 68, turn away the reproach that I dread. For your rules are good, and you are good, and do good. Teach me your statutes. In view of this, the serious, diligent Bible student may be troubled sometimes when you or I or anybody encounters certain divinely directed situations in Old Testament history when we read several biblical passages that superficially at least, appear to reflect upon the character of God. Now let's consider just a few of these problems this evening and see what the scriptures say. For example, we know about the extermination of the Canaanites. When the Israelites were commissioned to take the land of Canaan, God instructed them to smite completely the peoples that was there, to show no mercy at all. Deuteronomy 7. Accordingly, when Israel invaded Jericho, for example, we are told in Joshua six twenty one, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both men and women, both young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, by the edge of the sword. Now at that time, Jericho, still located, of course, at the northern end of the Dead Sea, about 800 uh, miles uh, Uh, 800 feet, I should say, uh, below sea level, with the Dead Sea being some 1,300 feet below sea level, the city swelled with people when they heard about the Israelites coming. Because people were living in caves all around, when you visit there today, you'll see those caves called the city of the palms, because palm trees are everywhere. So they came from those caves, and from those campouts, and from those other places all around, and they went into Jericho, and doors were shut, and the city swelled with individuals, because they knew that the Israelites, or as in some cases people refer to them now as been discovered, the Aparu, are coming. So how does a very sincere Bible student come to grips with the seemingly breach of goodness of God? Uh, Several things must be taken into consideration. First of all, there was rampant immorality going on. It must be noted that the Lord had been very patient with those grossly immoral pagan tribes for a long, long time, and when Abraham first came into the land of Canaan, we know that Joshua promised that this country would someday become belong to his seed, and it would, uh, and it could not yet be theirs for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, declared God in Genesis 15. The word Amorite here refers to all those pagan. Cultures, Canaanites, Persianites, Amorites, so forth and so on. As it is, uh, we have to understand that it is as though the sins of those heathen peoples gradually were filling up a container. Eventually, a, a point would be reached when God could tolerate it no longer. He had had it. The wicked would have to be destroyed. Therefore, it was not a violation of his goodness I set forth. Rather, it was to preserve the goodness of God that he had them destroyed. When you look at some archaeological discoveries, such as those of Igarit, have which is, we'll show you a map of that in a minute up in uh, Syria, they have revealed the corruptness of these Canaanite nations. For example, in the Canaanite religion, El was the chief god of Baal, who was his son. These were gods who had absolutely no concept of morality at all. And here's an here artifact of Baal that stands in a museum today. I have here, my privilege to visit Israel and those archaeological digs on six different occasions, I have here an austeria head. This is a pagan Canaanite fertility goddess, the head of one that would have been placed in a house. Body would have been about this tall, emphasizing fertility. With a headdress, the almond eyes, the bulging cheeks, very characteristic of that time. These are found throughout Israel. And so these pagan gods and this immorality was rampant. Here's the map of showing where. Uh, that city is, even uh, as you go there today, to look at the ruins, modern Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and then, of course, down in this area, of course, is, uh, is Lebanon, and then you get down into Israel over here, and then, of course, modern Turkey uh, to the north. And these are the ruins of what we have there today, of this pagan society that practiced all of this pagan religion. Here is the entrance to the city and perhaps to one of the temples that was there. Here's an inscription on, uh, on some stone that was drawn, uh, emphasizing, of course, fertility in this goddess and so forth. This is what they practice. Um, this is another discovery of El that uh, was discovered there in Syria, their, 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 their god, their evil goddess. In a poem that's known as The Birth of the Gods... El is said to have seduced two women and horrible sexual perversions are associated with his name. He married three of his own sisters who were also, who were married to Baal. He is represented as as practicing vile acts and influencing others to do likewise. It is little wonder then that the evidence indicates that the Canaanites followed these and their gods in such abominations. In the Canaanite religion, homosexuality and other uh, perversions uh, took place were employed to raise money for the support of the temple. It is not an exaggeration to say that these pagans elevated this immorality to the status of a god that sounds kind of familiar today. And that's exactly what's happened to much in our society, let alone others in Europe and other places today. And many scholars believe there are hints of this sordid background in Old Testament passages such as Deuteronomy 23.18 um, where it mentions this hire of a harlot, the wages of a dog, into the house of Jehovah. And here's the quote from Deuteronomy 23.18. You shall not bring a fee for a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord, your God, in payment for, now, for any vow... For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. A lot of brutality was taking place, and God wasn't going to put up with it anymore. The Canaanite religion has a horrible, brutal system of brutality. Um, for instance, uh, one of the goddesses is pictured as killing humans by the thousands and wading knee-deep in blood, cutting off hands and, 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 and uh, heads and, and wearing them as ornaments. It is just a hideous, hideous, hideous thing. Others sacrificing their babies to their gods. When you look at some jars that are discovered in archaeology, we had one here from January to December 2016 when we had the exhibit of 65 artifacts from the city of Ai. There was a funeral jar over there and where the bottom end was cut out. Canaanites always buried their uh, children or their deceased, especially the children, under the floors of their homes many times. And this funeral jar that was found at I was testimony to that. Um, they were found all over the bodies of young children distorted by suffocation. They weren't dead yet, they suffocated as they struggled for life, having been buried alive as a sacrifice to these pagan Canaanite gods. Such young children have been found in. Foundation pillars of Canaanite houses and sometimes religious ceremonies were associated with their, with their sacrifices. Here's a picture of one. A jar filled with the remains of children found uh, not only uh, in northern Israel, all over the Middle East, in fact, in many places. We look at the book of Jeremiah, for example. Chapter 7, verse, beginning of verse 31. And they have built the high places of Toth. Which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley. When you look at Jerusalem today, and you visit Jerusalem, the old Hinnom Valley. Back then, even during the days of Christ, it's where they threw all their garbage to bury their sons and their daughters in the fire, which did not, which I did not command, nor did I, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be, when it will no more be called Topath or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they bury their, uh, in in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. The dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air, for the beasts of uh, of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah. And in the streets of Jerusalem, the voices, the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Preservation of good. But it also is important that we have to emphasize that the destruction of these wicked people was the moral preservation for the nation of Israel. The Old Testament makes it clear. When they invaded Canaan, the Hebrews were not allowed, uh, would not allow their enemies to live that they, they teach you not to do after all of their abominations which they have done unto their gods. So would you sin against Jehovah your God, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 20? But why is it so important? Among other reasons, it was the Hebrew nation that the Messiah, of course, would make his appearance. Therefore, the salvation of mankind ultimately is at stake here. The extermination of the wicked inhabitants of Canaan, therefore, was an example of moral surgery in order to save the life of the patient. And the patient was the human race. God had to perform some surgery in order to save the human race. Moreover, let's remember this, that God, because of who he is, has the right to render judgment upon evil at any time. And he does, and he did. What about the children? The question is often raised. However... But why did God allow the children to be destroyed? Well, I would put forth these thoughts. In a world where there is to be freedom of choice, one must be allowed to suffer the consequences if you make wrong choices, even when he is not a party to such choices. Making bad decisions not only affects us, but affects those around us, as well. We fall heir to the consequences of evil in others as a part of the price that we pay for our own freedom. So, children often are victims who suffer because of the evilness, obviously, of their parents. Second of all, the question just raised represents a real problem, only if it is viewed in terms of the present. But we have to see it in, matter of, in terms of eternity, I believe. The situation becomes altogether different. Would it not have been uh, infinitely worse in view of eternity had these children grown to maturity and adopted the same pagan practices of their parents? And they would have. Even this consideration, though, must be seen in the light of the principle that we've just mentioned with respect to the coming of Christ and God's temporal judgment upon sin. Now, let's talk about temporal judgment for just a moment. General definition, all New Testament Christians, us, accept that there is a final judgment of all men for their sins on the day of judgment when God comes again. We know that's going to happen. This is unquestionably a biblical doctrine. Christians should also accept that there are temporal judgments of God on individuals and nations according to His good pleasure. The word temporal simply means relating to worldly rather than spiritual matters. Temporal judgment, referring to an application of condemnation and punishment by God in time in this world, before the day of judgment, at the end of time. An example of temporal judgment in the church or the members um, such as the death of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to God. Acts 5. An example of a nation suffering temporal judgment is Moab. Ezekiel 25. I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Temporal judgments. An example of temporal judgment upon an individual sinner is, of course, recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 13, 8 through 11. The sorcerer there, Maus, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and this is what he said. O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time, Immediately, a dark mist fell upon him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now, we certainly do not know all of God's mind on this theme. I think Romans 11.33 gives us that thought. But if we study the Old Testament record of the Lord's dealings with these nations, together with archaeological findings that illustrate the corruption of the people that we have already, already have right here, Just one small example. Surely we ought to be able to see that Jehovah's wisdom regarding those events should not be disputed at all. And finally, it might be noted that no one has the right to criticize the moral activity of God unless that individual can establish and defend some genuine moral standards apart from God. And this no unbeliever can do. In the Bible, there are some what we call uh, spoken curses. Spoken curses in the Scriptures are those portions that contain the writer's prayers or some songs of, of vengeance upon enemies, or um, which end in triumphant praise uh, at their de- destruction. For example, "Destroy them, O God," Psalms five, or "Break the arm of the wicked and evil men," uh, evil man, Psalms ten, and these other verses in Jeremiah and Nehemiah. Now, many have wondered how such expressions could be a part of of God's divine revelation. Though the subject is complex, I admit, perhaps the following thoughts will shed some light on this matter. These writings were not mere hot-headed bursts of personal vindictiveness. We recognize, of course, that a lower level of moral responsibility was tolerated in the times of old, in the ancient times. Human race that gradually was being prepared for the coming of the gospel. We read about that in Acts, Matthew, and Romans. In Acts chapter 14, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own ways. Yet he did not leave him without witness, for he did good by giving your you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Nonetheless, the Old Testament, in many instances, unless divine judgment was being exercised, encouraged service to one's enemies, exodus, forbade hatred, vengeance, Leviticus, Proverbs. So one ought not, therefore, to take a low view of the biblical spoken curses that obviously were placed in the divine record for a very specific purpose. The Bible-spoken curses ultimately express a zeal, a zeal for for God's cause, Jehovah's cause, and significantly express a willingness to leave vengeance in his hands. But they do acknowledge that punishment for sin is a part of the divine order. Psalms. First Samuel and we must also remember that the enemies of Israel were the enemies of, God, of, of, of Israel's God. Israel's defeat was a reproach to his name. The cause at stake was not merely to, to uh, do away with a nation at all extinction of a nation but the cause of divine truth and righteousness. So this aspect uh, of the conflict Uh, is most expressed, is completely expressed in Psalms 83 and prayers for vengeance such as those in Psalms 79 and 137 that express the national desire for the vindication of a just cause and the punishment of all of these cruel insults. Now, it ought to be recognized, I believe, that some of the language of these spoken curses are seemingly brutal and maybe highly figurative metaphors and images uh, being borrowed from an age in history that was characterized a lot by slavery. No one will argue, for example, that Christ was suggesting that certain people who caused stumbling in others should literally be weighed down with a stone, thrown to a sea, Matthew 18, or that Paul, in rebuking those who exalted circumcision, hoped that they literally would would mutilate themselves in Galatians. We have to focus, I, I believe, upon the idea being conveyed and not necessarily this poetic imagery in which the idea is is wrapped up in or clothed. This principle needs to be applied to these Old Testament spoken um, curses. Now, there are some critics today that have alleged that the Bible represents um, God as something acting in ways that are clearly unethical. For example, concerning Pharaoh, God said, I will harden his heart Exodus four, the book of uh, Ezekiel quotes the Lord as saying, "I give them and uh, give them also statutes that were not good." Ezekiel twenty. And Jeremiah said of Jehovah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people. In chapter four, Jeremiah. So numerous sincere biblical students, I believe, have been greatly perplexed by some of these similar sayings. But the solution, I think brothers and sisters, lies in an understanding of certain traits of Hebrew expression. Um, Active verbs were used by the Hebrews to express not the doing, but the permission of the thing which was the agent said to be done, or that they did. This involves the concepts of man's free will. God has allowed man to have freedom of will. We know that. But when human beings choose to do wrong, the Lord is not going to overpower them and force righteousness upon them. The truth is, Jehovah allows us as humans to act as we will, though ultimately there's a price to be paid. But sometimes the Bible uses figurative terminology representing God as performing the action, though in reality he is not. Now, let me go on for just a moment. Let me skip down here to another Um, over here in uh, Psalms 81, verse 12. So I let them go after the stubbornness of their hearts, that they might walk in their own counsels. And when Jeremiah suggested that God deceived the people of Israel, he really was saying that God allowed them to follow their own paths of self-defeat and to eat the bitter fruits thereof. Because of this rampant sin, Jeremiah had foretold of a great destruction to be visited upon the people of God. The people declared that this evil would not come. Neither shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets who declared such were were considered to be just so much of a wind about this. Since they were determined to be deceived, God in effect simply said, Go ahead and be deceived. I'm not going to stop you. And that's exactly what happened in many cases. Those who represent, those who respect the Bible as a verbal inspiration of the Word of God, need to realize that though they may from time to time encounter certain passages of Scripture that seem difficult to understand initially, there are adequate explanations for these texts, I believe. By means of patience and research, we can discover many of the answers. That will help solve these problems, and even if we have not yet found all the answers, we ought never to to uh, foolishly charge God with error. It is not god 's error at all. For example in Galatians, in Colossians one it reminds us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, verse fifteen, and that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell. In him, verse 19. Jesus is God's goodness in the flesh. He demonstrated God's desire to pour out blessing and help and deliverance on us in three different ways. God allowed Pharaoh to harden his own heart. Pharaoh did all the hardening. God knew what was going to happen. Well, let's take a look at these three points as we come to the end tonight. First of all, he took the judgment that our sins deserved upon himself. Romans 5, 8 says, God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We know that passage well. And so God's extravagance flowed to us in the amazing substitution of His Son in our place on the cross. His death for us is the undisputed picture of unmerited goodness. That's about as good as you get. Unmerited goodness. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. In fact, we continue to do things to prove that we don't deserve it sometimes because we forget about this wonderful salvation that we have through Christ upon that cross second of all he includes a thousand other things in the gift of himself romans 8:32 god says this of god he did not even spare his own son but offered him up for all of us how will he not also with him grant us everything in other words god has already sworn uh, shown His goodness toward us in the biggest way that's all possible. There's no other way. All the other little details to help us live godly lives through thick and thin are included in that gift. And how grateful we ought to be and how often we forget about the goodness of God through His Son. Thirdly, Jesus unlocks God's goodness toward us in new ways. For example, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, tell us that every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. That means all the good, all the perfect gifts of God come to us through our relationship with Jesus. If your relationship with Jesus is not right, make it right. Make it right before it is too late. If we want to understand and appreciate God's goodness, we have to begin and we have to end with Jesus. So in order to preserve the goodness in times of old, God allowed the destruction of men, women, children, and many other things, tore them down. And Hezekiah, as he tore down all of those idols, And all of those places that were a perversion to the word of God. All of these things such as this that they worshipped. We don't worship. Today this world worships immorality. Not perhaps in a statue like this. Worships immorality in many other ways. And thumbs its nose up against God. And says, I'll play God. And I know what's best for me. So as we look here in in chapter 5 of of the book of Galatians, and we read again, the works of the flesh are evident. I'm reading from the New King James. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies. Jealousy isn't murder, but it's, it's it's against the word of God. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger or wrath, unself- or selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the like. Of which I tell you before, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We may not be murderers, but we can be contentious at times, and we certainly can cause dissension. And we certainly can be selfish. And we certainly can do some of these other things that are not right. Outbursts of wrath, hatred, jealousies. They're all wrong. They are not fruits of the Spirit. They serve the devil. They serve Satan. They serve uh, entities in our society that pull down humans and destruction upon human life. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk In the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. I'll read that every day. I certainly need to read it every day. I'm not perfect, and neither are you. There's a passage in in, in the book of um, Exodus that talks about the long suffering of God. But the Hebrew is a very descriptive language. A lot, lot of descriptive verbs and so forth, but very descriptive. Um, only 22 letters in that alphabet. And when you look and read the Hebrew and look at the translation, when it says about the long suffering of God, in the original Hebrew, it talks about the long nose, N-O-S-E, of God. It's literally what it says. The long nose of God. Translated, the long-suffering of God. So God's long-suffering is expressed in the Hebrew by God having a long nose, long-suffering. And he certainly did permit these individuals to continue their immorality and all of this. But there came a time when he said, no more, no more. Now, I know when Joshua went into the land, you know as well as I, he didn't destroy everybody. He did not conquer everything at all. He destroyed some cities. Some he didn't because they had to live in houses. He destroyed some vineyards, but not all because they had to eat. They lived in houses they didn't build, and they reaped from vineyards that they didn't plant and gardens. So God knew what he had to do. So the goodness of God is shown in these examples about ridding the country, the people of immorality. And of course it continued. Satan continues to rear his head everywhere. We look. And immorality is everywhere. And we have to be ready to counter it and to combat it. I have a few minutes left. Are there any questions or comments at all about any of this? You can come up here and take a look at this. i head steer you ahead, um, whenever you wish. Uh, in the other class I had a got a new Testament Old Testament uh, Old, a New Testament lamp up here. Yes, sir. Yes. yes. Right. Sure. In fact, I think you can still order some of those. I've got fortunately have some of the copies in my library. But yeah, difficult texts of the Old Testament, difficult texts of the New Testament, and there's others been written. And those are good good books to invest in. Build your library, brothers and sisters. Read your Bible, and build your good good library. Yes, sir. Other questions? Anybody else? But we're going to get out just a few minutes early come up here and take a look at this let's have a word of prayer i have